Hello, and welcome to our podcast, The Midnight Ramblings. I'm Jenny Silverstein, and I'm with my dear friend from Ladue Junior High, Carrie Austin Rosenthal. If you are joining us for the first time and you're wondering what this is all about, Carrie and I are two menopausal friends who can no longer sleep at night. So we decided the best thing to do would be to create a podcast about what we and others think about when we can't sleep. So as we like to say, let's get ready to ramble! If you didn't recognize the voice of that amazing person, he is our guest today. His name is Wiley Blevins. He is a friend of mine. We worked at Scholastic together many, many years ago. He is an author living in New York City. He has written more than 75 books for children and 15 for teachers. He taught elementary school in both the United States and South America and has recently been in TV commercials for a children's television channel in Korea. He is also the associate publisher of Raycraft Books and he has a PhD from Harvard. Our brilliant friend, Wiley Blevins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. And of course, as you know, we like to talk about what we think about in the middle of the night. So, mister, what do you think about in the middle of the night? Well, I have a very difficult time falling asleep, which I know a lot of people do. I'm, I'm kind of a strange person that I have a four-hour sleep cycle. <laughs> I, I'm also a napper. So I've ever since college, I take a nap in the late afternoon or early evening, and then I sleep for four hours at night. And if I don't, so I go to bed really late and I get up very early, or I will go to bed super early and do two sleep cycles. But what that means is I wake up in the middle of the night and I remember things. So that's one thing you should know about me. The other thing is I'm not a very confrontational person. I'm very much a glass half full person. So I don't like to have conflict throughout my day. So if anyone's done me wrong or anything upset me, my mind is so preoccupied with it before I go to sleep. That's when I yell at them. So I will have really nasty conversations with people and my mind won't shut off because I will tell them exactly what they did and why I think it's wrong and, and what have you. So it's really, really hard for me to shut my mind off. But it's, it becomes such a problem that I can't shut my head off that what I've taken, uh, what I do now when, when I'm just, you know, I'm lying there and nothing's happening is I, I watch TV and there are two channels. One's called Me TV and one's called Cozy TV. <laughs> and Oh my God, 10.30, Perry Mason, it's 11.30 your time. Yes, my feeling now is that in order for me to clear my mind and to calm myself, I watch an old, a rerun of an old comedy. So at night here in New York, they have Frasier, then Roseanne, then The Nanny, then Will and Grace. So I can just sort of tune out, laugh for a half hour, hour, whatever it takes, and clear my mind. And I will literally start falling asleep while I'm watching because I know the show. And it's just like a, it's like comfort food. Yes, 100%. I do the same thing. The interesting to me is that I become super nostalgic as I get older. So like I, I have lunch at noon every day. I'm a, an early luncher and I will watch the Waltons while I'm eating lunch. I'm originally from a very rural community in West Virginia and it feels like home and it just feels so comforting and it's a very emotional show for me. Like it's every season, is, you know, every episode is like a tearjerker, but I just, it just makes me feel good. I so. got news for you, Wiley. My neighbor, when I lived in New Jersey, 
His name is Tarquin, if he's listening. His sister or his mother or aunt, I can't remember which, is the mother on the Waltons. You're kidding me. No. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to put that, I just had to, you know, name drop. Even though I didn't quite name drop, I kind of name drop. But anyway, my point is, is that I have to tell you, in my family, my, my kids come in because my son has the exact same issue that you and I have related to having the, I call it the like frantic brain. Yeah. And I watch TCM and I watch MeTV. TCM is uh, Turner Classic Movies. And I, I, it doesn't matter what's on. It's just the way they talk. And it just absolutely like, sets me to a happy place. It turns my brain off. I mean, I have never, I'm embarrassed. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I've never smoked weed, but I haven't. But I, I would say if I did, it like these TV shows are like my weed. 100%. So I have a question along those lines. Like if you're watching all these shows before you go to bed and you have the four hour sleep cycles, mm-hmm. what happens when you wake up after the four hours? Like, do you turn it back on? Or- no, I, I get up. Generally, I just get up. So I'm, I'm very much an early riser. Um, you know, I come from, like I said, a, a family in West Virginia where everyone would get up super early and go out on the front porch and watch the fog lift off the mountains. I mean, we believe in starting our day slowly and gently. And I, I still have that. I don't like to jump out of bed and race through my morning. I want to start slowly and sort of collect myself. And so I, I like getting up very early. Going back to our childhood, we, we do try to recreate that. And it sounds like you had a very like peaceful way in your family and and you're going back to the Waltons which reminds you of that and all of these things and just um and I I also love to rise slowly and kind of it does go against places like New York or LA where we're all just like hit the ground running and you know I tell my clients you know not to look at their phone for the at least the first 30 minutes of the day you know, because your mind is just this wellspring at that time when you're first waking up. It's like you're born anew. The, just to go back to your previous point, I, I do my best writing early in the morning when my mind is the clearest and, and the freest. So, you know, th- it's a very productive time in terms of just my thinking. It's interesting because sometimes what we're doing is going back to our childhood, I guess. But for me, what I like about it is that it's a time of innocence. A lot of these shows, the things they put on TV were more innocent. And the reason I mention that is because in my case, they don't bring back really my childhood. I wouldn't say it wasn't a bad childhood, but my parents were getting divorced, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't like the most, it's not like I'm recreating that. I'm actually trying to go to a new place (laughs) that is sort of more idealistic and untrue of the world that just relaxes me. And it just lets my brain kind of float in there. How about you? Yeah. My childhood, there were a period of time that was blissful. And there was a period of time that was the opposite. Mm -hmm. divorce and all the things that happened after that but I I do go back to right before the divorce and that's the Waltons that's you know that's all things where I was I I grew up in a very um, strict fundamentalist Southern Baptist community so I was very much isolated from the world so we were restricted in what we could see on TV we didn't go to movies unless it was Disney we weren't allowed to listen to the radio anything secular was bad so I didn't know a lot about the outside world so you know, in a way, it, it was very difficult when I went out into the real world because, I mean, I spent my almost my entire 20s with my jaw dropped because I was shocked by everything. I was, was going to say, how did you end up in New York, Wiley? It was so naive. And there's so much I didn't know. I, I It just, it, it amazes me how little I knew about the world. But, but I, I had a period of time in my life where it just felt blissful. 
And so I do appreciate that that was given to me, that I was isolated from all the hardships of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Highly prepared to deal with them, <laughs> but you learn. Well, I made a very conscious decision in my 20s because my, my teen years and my early 20s were a bit chaotic. And I realized somewhere in my 20s, I don't remember exactly where, that I was in control of my happiness, that I couldn't depend on other people for my happiness. And it was a major turning point in my life. So I started, I decided to surround myself with people who brought joy and light into my life and to disassociate from people who brought in chaos as much as I could. Now you can't always on the the job and what have you, but as much as I could. And sometimes that meant people who were in family who were close that I had to just not spend as much time with and, and, you know, make excuses. I wasn't available for this or what have you and just slowly disassociate, not necessarily cut them off, but just distance myself. And so I've tried to stay in control of my happiness as much as I could from that point on. Um, and that's why, you know, I think that's why I like Carrie so much because she's joy and light. She was so much fun and scholastic to be around. And I like surrounding my, I think, you know, we bounce off of each other, these emotions and these feelings. If you're around negativity, it's just going to soak into your soul. And I just don't want that. And so the, the last four years have been really tough on me because I could not escape just the the, the negativity and the, the ugliness. And I was confronted with people... I love people in my life supporting someone who represented something that was so anti what we were raised to believe in and, and all things like when you grow up in a Christian environment and you see people who are in that community supporting someone who represents the opposite of everything that is Christian, it's really, really hard. So these last four years have been difficult for me for a host of reasons, personal and just daily life and what have you. At what point did you kind of figure that out? Yeah, I don't really know. It was just, it was in my mid twenties and I I just, I saw so much, I was surrounded by so much that was difficult. You know, I had no money and there was, you know, the things I'd gone through in my teens and early twenties and all of that. And I just, I just, I just saw people relying on everyone else for their happiness. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. I have to take control of my life. And I, I really, you know, I felt like when I went to college, it was a big opportunity for me to take control of my life because I didn't have a very good high school experience. I didn't grow up in that town. I didn't fit in. I went to high school in Ohio. And so mm-hmm. I'm from the rural South. I, you know, I spoke different and I dressed different and I just, I didn't fit in for a lot of reasons. I stuck out like a, I stuck out like a sore thumb. I even had a principal in high school told, who told me one day, I don't know what kind of maverick you are, but there's my school for mavericks like you. Oh my God. The principal said that. Yeah. What was, were you doing? You don't do anything like crazy. No, <laughs> I'm a good kid. You know, it, it just, it's just that I can't come from a different community. I fought differently. And I was, my parents raised me to be very strong in who you are as a person and make decisions for yourself. And so I wasn't someone who followed the crowd. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, so I never did drugs. I never drank. I never did any of these things. I just, I wasn't that kind of kid. And so I stuck out. I was different. And it sounds like you just were kind of dropped into this environment, which I can relate to. I, I grew up, was born in South Africa and was dropped into St. Louis where I met Carrie. Um, And I felt like completely different. Like just who am I in this like sea of just, I don't even know, like Midwestern and I was from South Africa. I had an accent. I tried to, you know, learn how to how to lose the accent in my dad's like 
you know, tape recorder. I'm fascinated by two things you just said. One, the accent. I, I saw a thing on TV after I moved to, to the school in Ohio, how they train newscasters, how they get this sort of flat Midwestern way of speaking. And so I started practicing mimicking newscasters to get rid of my accent because so many people made comments about it and I sort of squashed it. And now I feel shame at having doing that. But at the time it was sort of a survival mechanism. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we would, we would talk into this tape recorder and I literally remember the words. It was like tomato, not tomato. (laughs) Or it was just can't, not can't, you know, and it was just, now I look back and I think, oh my God, I love that accent. My parents still have it. But yeah, I mean, you feel kind of, you know, shame and guilt, but it clearly for you, I, like what I'm interested in is how did you then go from that kid to writing 75 books? Like where did that, you know, where did that all, I mean, it just seems like in such an interesting development. It's the strangest thing to me because I mean, as Carrie knows, I come from what I call legacy of illiteracy. My grandparents can't read or write. So I grew up in a home with books. So when I went to school, my my parents did graduate high school. My father was very good at school and skipped a couple of grades and graduated early and went on to the army. But my mother struggles with reading a bit. So it wasn't really emphasized, but my parents were thrilled when my sister and I started to learn to read and I took to it very quickly. It was, was, you know, it was my gateway to the outside world. I never thought of myself as a writer because I thought of writers as people who live in New York and write the great American novel. I didn't know that there was, there's so much work in writing. I always wanted to be a teacher from the time I was very, very young. And so I had blinders on in terms of that. I wrote for fun all the time. Even in college, I had a children's literature class and we had to keep a journal. And instead of keeping a journal, I wrote children's stories every week just for fun. And my, my teacher said, oh, you need to do something with this. Share your, you have a unique voice. I never took any of it seriously because I never, I never thought it was possible and it never seemed like a career. So I, I became an elementary school teacher and I was creating my own curriculum and doing all these things. And that's when I went to grad school, I did an internship at a publishing house in Boston, Houghton Mifflin. And that's how I got into publishing and then started doing writing there. So it just evolved over time where people kept saying, you are a writer, but it took me a really long time to believe it. And then to share your stories for the first time is really stressful because for me, it feels like I'm putting a piece of my soul on paper. And the minute you put it on paper, people criticize it. And so that's a very vulnerable place to be. Um, so, you know, it's been a long, long process. The one thing I was going to ask you, Wiley, was, you know, another thing that you did, um, I was thinking about, you should share with everybody, you, you had a very successful career at Scholastic and then didn't you like drop out and decide I'm going to be a writer? I think you should share that story because I think it's really inspirational. I felt like I I was very successful in publishing. I I rose very quickly to the ranks, became a vice president and editorial director. And I just felt like I had, I had done it all. All I had, I had far surpassed any dreams or expectations I had. And so I thought I want to leave when people still want more from me. Cause I saw so many people in publishing who stayed on to the point that people were pushing them out. And I never wanted that to happen to me. So I felt like, I've done everything I can. I'm really satisfied with what I want to do. Now it's time for phase two, step two, career two, whatever you want to call it. And so I just stepped away. Um, 
I just I just felt like it was the time to tell my own stories and to find a, another path in life. So I still continue to do consulting and publishing, and I'm still doing that now. But it's it's on my terms, and I can say yes or no, and I can be as evolved as I want to be. And so I'm really lucky to be in that position. Um, but I'm also I also have the time and the the flexibility to do my writing. the The decision came when my father died. My father died around 60 and my grandfather died around 60. Both died before they could retire. And they worked like dogs their whole lives. And they never got that chance to enjoy, enjoy their, their, their time away from work. And I thought, oh my gosh, if this is the Blevins' blood, I'm going to die around 60. If that's my, my, my life you know, limit, when am I going to live? I've been working so hard and I've been loving working, but I've never really enjoyed the fruits of my labor. I love to travel. I've never been able to like sleep in or, you know, what have you. And so I just felt like, what is life really about? Am I going to work like a dog to 60 and die before I can do any of these things? Or am I going to slow down, step away from the titles and all the big money and all that and just enjoy what time I, I'm lucky enough to have? Wow. I think it takes so much courage to leave a position like that when you're kind of at your most empowered point and just, you know, like that I have to do this and I'm going to do this and um, I'm going to just speak my truth, whatever that is. And it found its voice. It sounds like in these, in these beautiful books that you, you know, your, your teacher kind of has said when you were little, um, why don't you do this? And you're doing it. The thing that I was noticing, I see a pattern with you, Wiley. And that's why I mentioned it. I see a pattern, you know, <laughs> the pattern I see is that here you were in West Virginia, you had a very specific life, a very specific life. And you were self-determined enough to say, mm, this is the life that I want this part of that life and this part of a new life. And you did it again. Yeah. And I think that ability to, I mean, I'm in awe of that. I'm not just saying that to kiss your tushy, cause, but I am because there, it takes such strength to say, okay, this is what, you know, I can, this is a silly example, but my grandmother, when we were growing up, when my brother got married, she's like, what China pattern are you going to um, pick and, to my brother? And my brother's like, I'm not going to pick a China pattern. And I was like, Randy, how could you not pick a China pattern? That's grandma says you pick a China pattern. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and as I got older, I was like, right. He didn't need the China. It, China wasn't for him. And it's so important for us. To, and yet he's like my grandmother in so many ways. It's like he kept the things that worked for him yeah. and not the things that didn't. And I hear you saying that again and again and again. I'm also not afraid of failure. I failed many, many times in spectacular ways. And I learned from my parents very, very early on when they had enormous failures, we will bounce back. The low will get very low, but we will rise up again. So I always have believed that I can get out of any hole. So I don't fear the mm -hmm. fall. I know it's a struggle to crawl your way back, but I don't fear it. Mm -hmm. and motivator failure the the fear of failure doesn't motivate me to not do things so going back to sort of the the midnight ramblings like when you go to sleep and you hear these sort of 
conflicted voices and you turn on the TV and, and it kind of drowns it out, right? And now that we know more, or at least I know more about your story and how you're not afraid of failure and like you have been so successful and, and, um, and you found your voice, it sounds like. I'm just wondering, you know, what are the voices that keep you up and how, and, and still, because you seem so kind of at peace. It's injustice. When, when people, when I feel like people have been wrong, I've been wrong. People have been wrong. I, you know, as I get older, I'm less patient than I used to be. For sure. (laughs) Not you, me, me. I'm less patient. I wasn't pointing to you. (laughs) How less patient I've become. Um, it's just because you've gone through these things so, so much. And so when I see people, they're, they're people who just seem to be mean, actively mean. And there are days when I just don't like people. My sister and I talk about it all the time. We just sometimes, we're not big fans of people a lot. We, you know, we, <laughs> um, because there is sort of this, and, and maybe the last four years have accentuated the sort of negativity and all that. I don't know, but um, th- that's part of it. Got it. Got it. Well, I agree with you. I I mean, I'm not a big, (laughs) I'm not a big people fan either because, you know, but then like you said, we're drawn toward the light, you know, and that's, I mean, we're both drawn toward Carrie. We're people in my life that are um, just filled with light and positivity. And you learn as you get older and as your clock is ticking, right. You're, you're getting closer to whatever age you think you're going to die or your father died or whatever it is. And you're like, I, I only have so much time that I need to surround myself by light and by, and so sometimes the less people that you have, the more light you have. Right. I wish I could tell that to kids because they're so focused on popularity. Yeah. The quantity of friends, it's all about the quality. If I have one great friend in my life that I can depend on, that is more than enough. Yes. percent. The thing I was going to say about it is that I find that just back to the things you think about before you go to bed, I am the exact opposite of you in this way. I, if I have, if someone pisses me off, it is almost, I can remember at Scholastics, things would happen. And I mean, it took everything I had not to confront that person. Cause I came from a family where if something bothered you, you said it, you got it on the table, you talked about it and trying to like hold in So I would talk to myself when I would get home and have fights with people, not before I went to bed, but just, I can remember in high school because I had to learn to not, you know, pop off, I guess is the word. (laughs) And it's interesting to me though, because everyone's got to find that medium place and I use it so that I don't say too much and you say it so you can speak. Yeah. Yeah. it takes me a while to get to the point to where I can say the appropriate thing to someone that I'm upset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard for me to get there <laughs> sometimes. And well, do I, you? I try really hard to, because, you know, you want to be professional and you have, especially at work, you have these long relationships with people. You don't want to damage those, but mm-hmm. they're, you have to speak up for certain things and mm-hmm. let it be known, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like writing has helped with that? I definitely think writing those kinds of things can release some of that steam that you're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, writing can, for me, spending a half hour on a treadmill running really fast and angry can get rid of some of the steam. I found those ways to sort of purge as much of it as I can. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, 
it's interesting because I think about for me, Wiley, the I've talked about before how when I'm up at night, that time is like my, as you said, it's my most creative. I don't actually get up and write, but I think I get my ideas Mm -hmm. at that time. But it is also the time where I have those incessant thoughts that I can't get rid of. So I getting to the point where it becomes a positive and not a negative time is really hard, which is understanding that is when I turn on TCM because I'm like, I'm not, there's no creativity happening at this particular point. So we're going to like, guess who's coming to dinner, (laughs) you know, whatever. I mean, um, but like, I, I, I'm interested in how our mind, it's almost like our minds and Jenny, you could speak to this because you're the, you're the doctor of psychology. Um, but like, I, I'm interested in how our mind starts to regulate really. As I was gonna say, it's, just, it's forced me to dig deep to find out why I'm upset. And mm-hmm. suddenly the answer isn't a positive at me. Like mm-hmm. maybe it's a legal thing. Maybe it's, you know, sometimes it's not, the answer I hoped for. (laughs) (laughs) Call myself and say, you know, check yourself, Wiley. Well, right. And it's just like, you know, sometimes uh, people turn to Google, you know, to research what, why things happen. Like I'll have people just put a bunch of words in and then they'll go, oh, okay, that's me. That's why we we have to do that within ourselves, And that's where dreams can be very helpful. And that leads me to asking you about your dream because dreams are really like these direct downloads into our own sort of portal of, you know, self-regulation. And it'll all go in. And then like, you know, those cartoons where, you know, something pops out and you're like, what is this? And it's it's a story and it's a dream. And you're like, wow, that explains everything when you unscramble it or you unpack it. So, But this dream was just bizarre. And I think it's just a combination of things, you know, interactions with, with Carrie recently and things that have, I don't know. But it's, so I go into this little, this little store here in New York that where I'm getting food. You know, they have like these delis and you can get your own food in these little containers or what have you. So I'm getting my food and there's a little boy next to me who's very unhappy because he has a plate of kale. Now... <laughs> The reason I think this is, is because when I got sick from COVID, the, uh, someone I work with at, at uh, the publishing house put me on this meal plan so I would get some meals delivered. And this, it's a, an amazing meal plan, but they love kale. And I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm not, very LA. Everyone here is like obsessed with kale. It's like, what is it? The flavor of it is just a little strong for me. So I, I turn to this little boy and I say, if you mix it with some lighter colored greens. <laughs> so I give him this piece of advice. I finish getting my food. So I have a, a container of food, a piece of fruit. And this is where I think Carrie comes in. I have a giant matzo cracker. <laughs> the book I wrote about the Jewish holidays. I've never purchased a matzo cracker in my life. And as I'm going to check out, it keeps breaking into smaller pieces. I'm trying to hold on to this matzo cracker. I go to the cashier and she walks away, says I'm on my break, which is a very New York thing probably. But anyway, so I'm standing there and there's no one to check me out and I'm hungry. So I follow her back to her break room and there are a group of women there speaking in a different language. And I tried to jump in and they're paying me no attention whatsoever. I'm being completely ignored. So I sit and wait for a minute for them to take a breath so I can say, well, someone check me out. This is where it gets weird. A woman comes okay, in. Okay, stop. It's not weird yet? 
felt <laughs> weird up to this point. A woman comes in and sits beside me and says, I recognize you. And so they all stop and look at me like I'm supposed to be someone famous. She goes, you write really good reports. <laughs> My life. I mean, other than school. And so she's like, I will check you out. So I follow her to go to the cashier to check out. And behind the register is Keanu Reeves. And the reason I think this is important is because when I, when COVID hit and we were doing all the Zoom, my hair got really long. I was going to say, you look like him. Whenever I would, yeah. whenever I would get out of Zoom, people say, you're looking more and more like Keanu Reeves because I had the long hair, the little beady brown eyes and what have you. So I thought, okay, she thinks I'm famous, but there's actually a famous person behind the cashier. Maybe he'll check me out. And then I wake up. Oh, wow. This is a, this is an interesting one to unpack, right, Carrie? Um, <laughs> I first of all, I'm delighted by it. I don't know why, but in every way, there's nothing like what I like about this dream is that it's it's got everything. Do you know what I mean? It's got the fame. It's got being ignored. It's got um, Judaism, which I mean, what being recognized that someone will finally check you out. I, I, I like the the pun there, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. So what, what, when you woke up, were you happy or sad, Wiley? I, I wanted to know if I, I felt, I felt, um, I, I didn't feel satisfied because I really wanted this food. I wanted to check out. <laughs> you wanted a matzo cracker? Okay, and I'm curious, what is a matzo cracker? What does that mean? What does that bring up? Like when you think of a matzo cracker? Judaism and holidays. And what does that bring up? Because you said you were from like a Baptist. Well, I used to live, I lived in Israel for a while. And I just recently wrote a children's book with a, a very well-known Israeli artist about Jewish holidays. And Carrie and I were talking about it because when I lived in Israel, there were holidays like every half hour that I'd never heard of. And I would ask people, you know, what's this holiday for? And they would be like, I told Carrie this, they'd be like, well, we make these cookies like this mean guy's ears and <laughs> holidays. It's his hat, by the way. It's home in Tashin, and it's his hat. Just yeah, want to clarify. I, I don't know. I just feel, go ahead, go ahead. I was just saying, so I started really studying Jewish holidays. And so my friend, this artist who has paintings, I, I, I met him because I started collecting his art many, many years ago. And now he's, he's famous and he has things in the permanent collection of the Knesset and museums all over the world and blah, blah, blah. But every time I go to visit, I video and he shares what he's working on. And he did a series of holiday prints. That was one of his few sort of mass market things. And we took these prints and created- oh, wow. Wow. So- well, I'm, I'm just fascinated. I, I feel like, you know, the little boy in the dream is you and you're asking and you're being given something that is perceivingly healthy, you know, and you, you, you know, a prescription of some sort that, you know, of kale, you know, and, and then you are asking for different shades of green, which is, remember, remember, uh, Zach talked about that. Oh, that was a little, yeah. Um, that you want to kind of mix it up and then all of a sudden, you know, this matzah comes in and it's sort of crumbling, like it's not um, completely intact. And so it kind of speaks to, you know, your upbringing as a Baptist, you know, moving to Israel, things kind of not being, you know, that's not necessarily your religion, so to speak. And then you go to the checkout counter and nobody's there. And to me, this speaks to your identity of, you know, who am I? And who is going to check me out? Who is going to recognize me and, and sort of notice me? And, and really, you're talking to yourself. You know, it's not it's not you're talking to anyone else. And then you go behind into this room and, you know, 
these women are there and, um, and then, and then it, it, it ends with Keanu Reeves. Which what I, I get, I get, get that. Huh? I get that. Well, who, what does he represent to you? What is, I'm just curious. Just people kept saying. He looks like him. When your hair grew long, they kept. I see. Right. Yeah. I think he's Keanu Reeves. And it's the idea that as if fame is what validates you, but it's not. And that's what, it's so interesting that you were talking about that earlier, Wiley. You were saying that you have to be there for yourself. And, and you talked about the self-determination you made to make these life choices that then like helped you make the kind of choices that fulfilled you. And it's interesting because that matzo cracker is what fulfills you. I mean, now, because you just wrote this book, by the way, what is the name of the book? Sunday with Safta. <laughs> I love oh, it. I love it. I love it. The, the thing about the fame is interesting because I had a conversation recently with someone because, you know, I've been asked to do, like I was asked to do that commercial and I was asked to write this big paper for the International Literacy Association. And so sort of my notoriety has risen and I felt less and less comfortable with that. Ah. I like being sort of in making my mark, but being in the shadows. Mm-hmm. So I'm really like, uh, fame is not something I desire and it scares me. Mm-hmm. And the more notoriety you get, the more hits you start taking. Yeah. I'm very, very afraid of, of all of that. And by the way, I just have to say, Keanu Reeves, no, I just have to get this out because I'll forget it. Keanu Reeves, this other side of you that people kind of put on you, right? But you're not, but you kind of look like it, but you're not. Keanu Reeves, you think Keanu Reeves wants to check you out. You see that the power is in you, not Keanu Reeves. Mm. I mean, do you know what I mean? You know, and it's, it's, it's so interesting. I really love this dream now. Why? Who are the people that are going to hear me, see me for who I really am? And like you said, let's just take away people because most people, who cares? I mean, they, they, they are drawn to the Keanu Reeves. They're drawn to the fame. They're mm-hmm. drawn to the surface. And yeah. they don't really take the time to do what we're doing today to unpack what is, what's it really about anyways. What were the women, I'm just curious, like, can you describe what was, when you went back there a little bit, just? They were just in a huddle talking and having their own sort of, like, like I said, it was a different language and I didn't understand what they were saying. That's what I missed. Yeah. That they're talking in a different language and you didn't understand that. Uh Uh-uh. And I was waiting for a pause to jump in because when I did ask them, they just ignored me. See, now I I love that. That's a really interesting part of the dream, actually, before the Keanu Reeves part, because I feel like this huddle of women, I feel like there's a part of yourself, maybe, that um, speaks this other language, and that that's the mystery that you have to unpack. The thing I was just thinking about, Wiley, is that, again, I don't know, I'm obsessed with this aspect of your personality that starts off in West Virginia and ends up in New York City, that starts off with illiterate uh, family members and ends up at Harvard, uh, who uh, makes his way through the publishing world and then says, you know what, I'm going to step back and and really focus on my writing. Um, There is this thing, it's almost like each of those things out there were that gaggle of ladies. Yes who yeah. speak in a different language, who you don't yet understand, but you're trying to get in there. You're trying to say, hey, hey, yo, look at my, look at my matzah because I have a new book coming out and I'm going to do something with that. You're looking at me, is that true or not true, Look, Wiley? You're looking, 
it's, it's this conversation is fascinating me because people always ask me, where do I feel at home? Where am I? Yeah. And I don't feel like I belong anywhere because when I go back to the South, I'm so different. I don't fit in. And here in New York, people know I'm not a New Yorker. I don't fit in. When I'm in academia, I know I come from illiteracy. And so that's always weighing on. Like every place I go, I feel like an outsider. Lead us to the part of the dream again where you finally do get checked out. The woman, a woman comes and sits beside me and says she recognizes me. And all of a sudden, everyone stares at me like somebody famous. Hello. Okay, there it is. There's the big exclamation point. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, what is it? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, do you remember the woman who recognized you? No, so kind of nondescript, right? Which is kind of, was she part of the gaggle of women or was she... I assume that she worked with them because she led me back to the cashier. The okay. cashier. And the ca- you mean the, ch- the the cashier and where nobody was. Nobody was there. Yeah. Okay, so that woman, that woman, <laughs> recognized you, and yeah. finally, when you feel sort of recognized, not for you know you being in the south, not for you being um, illiterate, not for you being in academia, not for you being in Israel or whatever when she recognized your truth, like mm-hmm. your soul, the guy that we're talking to now, yeah. um, that's what, she led you back to the cashier, right? Yeah. And yeah. What, do, what happens at a cashier? Well, we get paid, right? But it's not necessarily monetary, right? Mm-hmm. Because we get paid through our, our work and, and our recognition. And yeah. we, are, we get paid to be sort of, who we are and to be remembered for who we are and, and remembered, remembered, like put back together through your writing, through your stories, through your sort of pattern of of fabric of your life woven together. And so there you are at the end, she leads you back. She recognizes you. And it does, I think get, you know, sort of mixed together and merged together with fame in a way, because when you're recognized, it's like, oh yeah. And there's a vague recognition. That's sort of this day residue of Keanu Reeves and other people put that upon you. But the true recognition was the woman who you felt ignored and then she led you back. And that's you sort of like leading yourself back to being recognized and being sort of paid. Well, I just think it's interesting now that we're having this conversation that the thing she recognized me for was my writing. Writing reports made me laugh, but- about the writing is my soul on the paper and, and so she recognizes something deep inside me that's important to me oh my god go ahead wait that's just like the teacher early on that recognized you for the yeah. reports for the yeah. things that, and then you were like no 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 I just want to and then you that's the part that you came back to yeah and I have to get this in here once again Wiley I feel like the theme here is that you are on your own path and you and what is great is that even if there's moments where you don't know how to get in to be recognized, to be uh, acknowledged by the women who speak the different language, you still figure your way into that different language and get the payment that you need or get to to that point. And I think it really speaks to your self-determination. I mean, it just, it's like every time you're talking, I'm like, oh my God, he's, you're like, you know how to clear a path. I keep thinking of this like a, a field of brush and you kind of have, have figured out ways to 
to make paths through that so that your life is fulfilling for you. I mean, it's really kind of impressive, Wiley. <laughs> and and what is that? What is that 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 helps or that why is that that certain people can clear a path? Yeah, I don't know. I- <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhere between the matzah and the kale. It's yeah. just somewhere in between there. It's just in there. It's it's a yeah. really great question. I wonder. It's a good thing to wonder because I really do think, Carrie, when you talked about self-determination, courage, and a real, real inner knowing that you knew, because there's an interesting thing with the little boy in the dream, that he was given kale. You know, when you're given kale, you're given a certain life, right? You're given a life saying, okay, we come from a Baptist family in this, in West Virginia, and you're, you know, we didn't go to college, and this is how it's going to be, right? You know, eat the kale, And it's supposed to be healthy for you, but in your case, it isn't the right choice. Well, the thing that's fascinating about when I told my family I wanted to go to college, they tried to talk me out of it. My parents were like, we have no money, so how are you? And and my dad was like, look, I can get you a job at Ford Motor Company with your uncles in Detroit, and you can retire in 20 years. Why would you do this? Mm -hmm. Like, actively discouraged from going to college. And you asked for the different shades of green, number one. And then the matzah was presented with a different culture, number two. And it leads you to this path that's cleared, like Carrie said. Suddenly, little drip by drip as a little boy, and there's a teacher that says, wow, you're really good at this. You know, and then along the way, there's little, there's people that sort of validate that, you know, and give you the matzah. And give you the different tools. Yeah. And it's worth to where you're at now, the gaggle of women are ignoring you. Well, maybe your father ignored you too that you wanted to go to college. You know, but guess what? One person recognized you. And I believe when people recognize you, they validate who you are and it gives you that momentum and that inspiration to clear the path. And I would argue that Wiley is that person. I know you're talking that it's the teacher. But Wiley believed that teacher. Something in him allowed him to have faith enough in himself to do the thing, to have that self-determination. And it's funny because Wiley, all I keep thinking about are the Hebrew letters behind your desk. When, so when I first met Wiley, we, this is a joke. Um, I'm Jewish. Wiley is Baptist, as we talked about, or was. I don't know if you're still practicing. But his. I walked into his office, and his name is Wiley Blevins, which to me, even though Wiley likes to say Levin, is Jewish. <laughs> Yes, on either side. Um, but, but, but I remember walking in and he had the Hebrew alphabet behind his desk. And I was like, why is this person who's clearly, at least in my mind, wasn't, you know, your New York Jew. I was like, why does he have this? And and then we got into that his best friend lived in Israel and he was learning Hebrew and blah, blah, blah. But the point is he was open to, and it's true of you too. And I have to say this too, Wiley. If you're interested in something, you are curious and you learn about it. That's why you wrote this new book that, that we were just talking about that you've written because you're like, well, what are these holidays? I don't get it. I'm going to learn about it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. Go ahead, Riley. No, I should say it's true. Once I'm interested, I do. My curiosity is a driver. And maybe that's it. 
I mean, maybe that is the thing that got you to all these places. But then that curiosity built and the courage and the determination and it kept going. And as you got older and wiser and, you know, I think you get not only more courageous, but your intuition grows so much and, and new ideas sprout out of that place of wisdom and, and sort of as you slow down. So I think, I mean, the dream was just perfect for, mm-hmm. for, you know, what's going on in your life and just who you are. And, um, it just explains so much and just, well, it's funny because I'm sitting here thinking that it might just be time for the hot flash round questionnaire. Wiley, are you ready? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I know, but if you had, you would know that we are going to accost you with questions and you just get to answer them as quickly as you can. The yeah. hot flash round, because we're menopausal, get it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, the first one I'm not going to ask you because I'm too embarrassed. <laughs> um, which best describes your approach to aging? A, let nature take its course, or color inject or cut me open as is necessary? Oh, What's the time? Color inject? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I will fight it tooth and nail. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, Wiley. Okay. Which do you prefer? And this can be about others you know, since in some cases you have not been through the second one. Which do you prefer, puberty or menopause? I hated puberty. So it would have to be older age. Okay. Um, Pick one, screens or no screens? Oh, screens. Screens. Yeah. Okay. Um, what is the best thing about insomnia? Best thing about insomnia? I guess time to think. Okay. And what is the worst thing? Uh, exhaustion the next morning. <laughs> Everybody says that. I don't even know why I asked that question. What is the best or worst thing about um well, this doesn't exactly apply because you don't have children, but in your mind, what is the best or worst thing about having kids? I, I think the best is unconditional love. Like I, I see my best friend who has a son and I'm his godfather and it was his greatest joy. It was his dream of life. And he is so fulfilled having this child in his life. I think for me, the worst thing would be is because I'm really sort of paranoid. I would worry every day about how am I going to keep them alive? A hundred percent. Like I would hide, you know, every sharp thing and cover everything. <laughs> like watch them like a hawk every second and they would hate me for it. Like people always said if I was a parent, my kids would be on drugs at like eight because I would <laughs> about them. Um, that would be the worst for me. I, I the, the responsibility to keep another human being alive is really overwhelming to me. And to me, just to add into that, it's keeping them alive and then when they're alive, healthy, not like fucked up. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so scary. I will say, I knew from a very early age, my parents were not perfect. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they always loved me no matter what. And that helped me understand, accept the imperfections. That is awesome. Um, Okay. Uh, What has been the most surprising thing about being (laughs) (laughs) middle-aged? He's like, I'm not middle-aged. What are you talking about? how I don't feel old yeah I feel like like maybe mentally I just stopped but I feel very young and I think I don't remember my parents being giggly with their friends and you know eating popsicles and you know (laughs) but I would totally do all those things 
kids. Because yeah. I just feel old. Yeah. Surprising. Okay, this is what is the best thing about being middle-aged? I, I just think there's a, a sense of comfort. Mm-hmm. You've gone through a lot of things about finding yourself and your work and achieving your goals and things like that. And you can just sort of sit back and relax a bit. Mm-hmm. Really what matters more as you get older. Yeah, it's true. If you had to pick one word, a cuss word or otherwise to describe middle-aged, what would it be? <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I mean, aches and pains. I think that's, <laughs> how your body starts to find you and you're yeah. just like mm. you know I'm still 20 why is my body acting like a 60 year old yeah like what the hell's up with that I, I had a conversation with my mom the other day and I was I was saying something you know because I had COVID I was like you know I'm still having this brain fog and blah blah she's like it's just you're old it's just old. <laughs> <laughs> like let's blame it on COVID please that is so funny. Um, well, I just want to say, Wiley, you are just a delight of a human being. I absolutely love you, and I am so grateful that you joined us this week. Um, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Midnight Ramblings to be notified of our latest offerings. To learn more about what we're all about, please visit us at themidnightramblings.com, where you too can become a pensomniac. And of course, be sure to tell your friends, because if you don't, it's very possible that we will be talking to ourselves. For the Midnight Ramblings, this is Carrie Opstein-Rosenthal and Jenny Silverstein. Thank you again for joining us. <laughs>